Andy Bollen, comma, Scott. <laughs> good morning. Hey. Um, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Morning. But we're talking uh, a month before uh, a very pivotal day because I think Scotland will beat England. Well, do you know, we've never had a better team. We've never had so many players play at a great level. Well, not since probably kind of Leash and Soonis and guys like that were play. Mm-hmm. There's so many players that are there, thereabouts, and knocking on the door. I mean, the trouble is they're all left backs. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. Last time you had to play Tierney at right back. Steve Robertson is playing left back and Tierney, if he's fit, goes right back. Well, Tierney, Tierney actually is quite good uh, in the middle. He can kind of play the left side of a, of a four. See if you've got four, you've got two set of halves. Really. He's, he's really good on the left-hand side. Uh, so he would probably, you know, um, they, can, they can both bomb up and down. They're, they're both good at getting up and down. So I don't know. I would, I would play my best players. I would find, I know managers like to stick to a position. I would always play my best players. Do you know what I mean? I, I just I, I think if you if you're there and you're playing at a top level, some of the some of the guys in the Scotland team aren't at that level. That's the thing. But yeah. Stevie Clark's got them playing. I kind of a, I always think born at national teams are usually good at national teams. I, I, I genuinely think that. I think that your current English manager, who I think he get originally got a, initially got a, a bit of a hard time with the, the sports media, especially down south. I think that he's. I think he's an absolute brilliant. He's like a teacher, and it's always about it's about slow improvement. The CT to do well at a national level, you've got to just take it slowly and always, always, always improve it. But I think it's got a good chance against England. Having said that, I think it could be one of those. I think it could be three each. I think it may be something like that. I think it may be ridiculous. It may be three each. That's what I'm putting my money on. <laughs> oh no, I'm, I'm not putting my money on anything. I suppose it depends on what happens in the opening couple of games Scotland host the Czech Republic at Hamden uh, and yes. then the third game will be uh, Croatia at Croatia. is it Hamden as well yes yes um, and then it's England at Wembley I, I just hope Scotland have a good run I hope you don't come home too soon um, why well it's quite good because we're already home well yes why don't because you, you've written this book which is so good uh, it's another one of those hundred things book. It's a history of Scottish football, not fit bar, football in a hundred objects, an alternative football museum. You thank the uh, Scottish Football Museum at Hamden and Scottish football for its unparalleled and wonderful absurdity. Uh, I suppose the closest thing to be absurd in the last few years is that Baccarat has become the national anthem. Um, well, I always knew that. I wanted the next book if there's an updated version. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's nuts. It is. Um, I remember when that was out. Yes, but, sir, I can boogie. I think I've got that somewhere in the house. Oh, I think I have as well. It's Spanish, a Spanish act. So it would be lovely if you could have the Baccarat derby and get through against Spain. Uh, but you are here in your capacity as also the writer of Fierce Genius, which has been out a few months now uh, on Pitch Publishing. Yeah. It's a book about the, dying, the last days of Johan Cruyff's playing career. So we'll get to that. Um, when we get to it, but I just want to ask what Sandy Trout would do if he were Stevie Clark. <laughs> well, Sandy Trout, if he was Steve Clark, we'd need to get out of, out of jail first. <laughs> we'd need to get a really good lawyer. <laughs> and then, thanks very much. You can do your research. I like, Sorry. I like when people chat to actually look into things. Yeah, Sandy Trout was a, a spoof first minister based kind of a loosely on a, a comedic version of Alex Salmon, but he was kind of a 
it was him meets Alan Partridge and he got everything wrong, but accidentally everyone loved him. So the more he was, again, that word absurd, the more, the more, the more incompetent he was, the, the more popular he became. And Scotland loved him, but uh, BBC wouldn't touch it. Uh, ended up writing a, a newspaper column, believe it or not, for about 18 months from it, which is quite cool. Um, leading into the 2014 referendum, and I, brought, I ended up uh, just first releasing a, a Kindle book, and it did really well. It, 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 was growing, it, was, it was doing really well. It was really well uh, received. But that was in between, but nobody would publish that. But Sandy Trout would probably... He would probably have he would go out to the park and, and get, give a rousing version of Flower of Scotland or something and then streak. I think he would do something like that. Absolutely, would probably do. Well, it's very something. easy to streak in a kilt. You just take the kilt off. <laughs> do a couple of cartwheels, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I like the fact that, um, and it is available for £2.99 as an e-book. No, no actually, one would publish I, it. I, I actually thought it was going to be, uh, I was speaking to people seriously and, are seriously chatting to people about it, and, and, and it was quite far down the line to maybe get made, but they, they, they thought the only way we could balance this up is if we can get like a kind of a Tory person in or a Labour person in, and, and that's it, well, you're missing the point of it. But anyway, aye, aye, Sandy Trout was cool. Mm. The it's a really funny story about the, the extra Scottish football, it is, it's, it kind of ties in with that. And in the museum, I was in the, I was in the museum one day, you got to pick up on this, I was actually walking around the museum my wife, was at a conference in Hamden now? The stadiums now they have conferences on about stuff and like she's a scientist. <laughs> she said, You only go to the Hamden Museum, it's absolutely stunning, it's amazing. And I was like, and I'm obviously a mad football fan. And she going, You love it, I absolutely love it. And I was like, Oh, typical Scottish foot, no, oh, no, the SFA and all that was Mr. Rebel right And I went in and I absolutely loved it, Johnny. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Everywhere I went, I was like, This is brilliant. You know, as anyone who's in or anywhere near Scotland or a football fan doing England, anywhere listening, if you're over in Glasgow, make your way to Hamden, you'll not, honestly, will not regret it. It's a fantastic museum. But all the way around it, I kept on thinking, where's all the bad stuff? <laughs> where's, where's, all, where's all the exhibits for all the stuff that's really dodgy about Scottish football that we know and love about Scottish football? So that's where I got the idea from. So At guess, the same time, I was, I was listening to A History of the World in 100 objects yeah, yeah. in Radio 4 at the time I know I know RKB Radio 4 the Garza and all that right? but I was I was <laughs> listening to this programme and I thought oh, it would be fantastic if you, had, you could take an object and sort of just establish a bit about it and then elaborate on it and then bring it out so that's where the idea came from and once I had that idea I was away it was just I had all this stuff in Scottish football and another idea I had so I was able to merge them it came out in 2019 in October and it, it, it was out for Christmas, and it's, it's a kind of a nice sweet book. It's, it's, it's a good size, and it's, it's really, you know, it's funny if I can say that it's, uh, it was Berlin it was on, and yes. uh, Arena Sports Books, which is a, you know, a, a part of Berlin. And Berlin are, were brilliant, they were really cool. And then I'm, I've actually done a follow-up, but because of COVID and all that, they were only releasing two books, and they couldn't... Um, couldn't do anything about it. So I'm actually, I've actually got a deadline for the end of this month for the history of European football and 100 objects, which is even more sinister. Kind of a funny well, we will we'll get to UEFA at some point. Yeah. I just two things to pick up on that. Price nine ninety nine. Uh, so as a hardback, it's a very well-priced book. And I used to live just off Newington Road. I lived at Hope Park Crescent for a year oh, when I was 19. Sorry. Would you like... Sort of like uh, some tea or coffee, and that's a bit snobby, posh. 
you and your working class Watford chat and all that, your friend, right? No, I've, I've, I studied Greek and Latin at David Hume Tower, which is now not called David Hume Tower, but that's for another time. And I, because I remember going up um, to meet Dr. Andrew Erskine and his office overlooked uh, Salisbury Crags and Arthur C. And he said, why would you want to work anywhere else? And so I applied, got in, uh, came up. Marcus Mumford was on my course. He dropped out to drop off the face of the earth and get platinum records. Uh, Meanwhile, I got my 2-1 Stayed in Edinburgh for an extra year. Didn't have a car. Barely went on a bus. Um, I went. Just walk. It's brilliant. It is. It's a phenomenal city. It's the best city in the world. However, very small population. And by the time I'd been in there for a fifth year, I thought perhaps it's time to move on. But I did a fringe show. I've been back up for the fringe. I step off of Waverley Station. I instantly think that I'm home again. Edinburgh particularly struggling. Well, there's no tourists just now, but you know. I remember last year there was a kind of, I remember we had a lull in between where you were allowed to, to go out and about for, I think maybe about July time. Remember they were doing the eat out to the, yep. the lunch thing to get everything going. And my friend was out in Edinburgh and he <laughs> was walking down Princess Street and took a photograph and it was just him. And it was like a, a Thursday afternoon. Normally it's just, it's always rammed, you know, Edinburgh's like, but it was just sad seeing yeah. uh, the cities, Glasgow as well, Glasgow's sucking Hall Street in Glasgow. Is the exact same. It's just, just they're trying to get bring it back, and hopefully they'll all come back. But there you are, Edinburgh. Edinburgh's lovely. Edinburgh's where we treat me. We stay in between Glasgow and Edinburgh, so there's a train that you can get in Glasgow and it, they, to to work and all that for in about eighteen minutes. But about thirty minutes, thirty three minutes, if you get the right train, you're in Edinburgh. Yeah. It's great, you can just jump the tower. I know it's, it's something special. Both cities are crying. I'm, I'm just right. sad I didn't have enough money to get over to Glasgow. The first time I went to Glasgow was to see a gig at King Tut's. And King I didn't take, didn't take a phone, didn't take a wallet. I was scared of Glasgow on a Saturday night. Got back to the bus no. station, having missed the encore of the gig. Got on the bus, loads of Girls Aloud fans. I was so pleased that there was absolutely no <laughs> risk that something bad would happen. No, there, there is a madness there, but there's a heart of gold as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a kindness. They would look after you. People mm-hmm. would give money to go home. That's the sort of thing it would happen. At least what was a gig you were at? Can you remember? That it was, was allowed. No, it was uh, the gig I went to was Sandra Lerke, who is a Norwegian chap who makes lovely yeah. poppy music influenced by Paddy McAloon. Well, see, uh, if I said to you, Glasgow, King Tut's, name a band, what was the first band to come into your head? Captain America. Next question. No, no, that would be the second one. The first one would be Oasis. Yeah. Never to get signed. I was, that was there. I was there and it to get signed. Seeing That's which band? You weren't was, seeing them. You were seeing the headliner. I was, I was there to see Boyfriend, who were uh, co-headlining with a band called 18 Wheeler. Uh-huh. And this other band from Manchester came up <laughs> and they sort of took over a wee bit with all their pals. Um, I was, I was really interested. I was standing beside Al McGee. And it was, it was the guys from old band, and I was just there was about four of us there. I'm not kidding on. And there was a wee, there was a wee guys from Japan. It was a Monday night. It was a band called the, it was a band called the Monday Night. In fact, it's probably me. This this me coming up again. It's probably the B band called at the end of me. The second band called in me. We were there, and I, I just went in and, and I caught this band, and I just thought they were like sort of. I felt sorry for them a wee bit. They were really tight and really organised and like dead, dead loud. They had their own sound, man. But I just didn't see it. Al <laughs> McGee's standing. Al McGee's sister was beside. It was me, Eugene Kelly, 
In fact, Eugene Kelly, me, Alan McGee, and Alan McGee's sister, the four of us standing front of the, the desk, uh, the sound desk at King Tut's. There was a few people hanging about. There's a few of the, the guys from Manchester, the casual guys that brought with them, all mm-hmm. the pals, brought a squad up from Manchester. They were okay. There was, they got a wee bit hairy whenever they weren't going to play. A couple of the bands were like a wee bit resentful of them, and then they just ended up, they come on and play. But I just thought they played four songs. They played I Am The Walrus, I remember that. But honestly, I, I actually used to point on and try to get out badly and very slowly. You sure we've got enough time? <laughs> anyway, so we kicked us. Uh, they come on, and and I, I I wrote this book called One Night in May or something. The the, the birth of creation. I had all hundreds of great tales for it. And I, I went round and did millions of research and got no one could remember. No one, <laughs> no one knew. And then loads and loads of people claimed to be there, and they didn't. I, I knew. I had a list of it, but all the people I knew that were there. We get in the guest list because our pal uh, was was the, the drummer and, and boyfriend. But they were on creation, they were on um, Alan McGee. Alan McGee was up to see them, really. And then he was this girl called Helen from Manchester, who was in this other band, and they came up with Oasis. They were friends with Oasis. And they, uh, Oasis followed them up just to see if they could go on the gig, and they got in. And the rest? Sister Lovers, the band. Sister Lovers, the band, were called the other band. Yeah. And they came up. I wrote, I wrote a book, and uh, everyone got close to getting, uh, getting published. And then they got to the meeting where they have with the... Um, the sales guys, the guys have to go out in the field and, and they're saying, Oasis is shite, no one likes Oasis anymore. They were allowed to swear. Is this, is this yeah, 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 go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I know, no, I will last die. So the, whenever whenever they, they got to the point where they, they were going to sort of give it a green light, I thought, I thought I had a deal, a big deal for this, this book. And they said, no, Oasis won't sell, nobody buys Oasis books. When was I think this? Actually, actually, can I just paraphrase that? And this is. This is what this is not what I would think of as example when wrote it. The guy said, Oasis fans don't read books. Was it quote? Mm. I'm not in the publisher. Imagine saying that. Like, yeah. No, that is it's <laughs> classist, it's racist, it's not fair. And they do read books. Uh, because they, they read and they buy everything. They buy everything. They bring out if, if Oasis bring out a, 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 rec, a, a an album full of B sides, they sell out in seconds. They're still, still, uh, I mean, if they got together, it would, it would, it would be three nights at Wembley or something, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. be, it would be that, that At level. least. Easily. Yeah, so that's why I can't touch, so that's my can't touch story. Thank you um, very much. Uh, no, this feels... Because the football library, I should say, the football library welcomes football books and your books on Cruyff and Scottish football and the Sandy Trout books are, are all in the library. We have John Nicholson on the front desk um, because he's... He's kind of the hermit, the chief librarian, and he'll he'll tell you that no. Sky are the enemy. Do you read Johnny Nick? Have you met Johnny Nick? No, no. I know his name though. Yeah, football three six five. I was about to tell you about my van about there. Do you know about that book as well? I would spend three hours with you talking about Kurt Cobain, but I'm very interested to know more than Cobain. Uh, what's Chris Novoselic like? He. Absolutely kind-hearted, wonderful, funny, really, whenever I knew him, really, really nice guy, very laid-back, just, but totally brilliant position, great intuitive person, very sensitive. I remember there was like one of the guys in our, our, our crew, he was like, we, we, were, we were kind of a not very good, we were all saying on, we weren't very well off and anything, <laughs> but we were all just sort of scrambling about and getting gear for pals and all to play. Mm-hmm. And we had, we had this wee guy on it. Murray's name was, and he was a sound man, and a, a sort of we had a tour manager on sound man and all that because we needed to get organised and get, get our act together. And, and Murray had a, a Coors Light bomber jacket thing that he got from some tour, right? 
some really bad tour in the eighties, and he was in this wee sort of bubble uh, jacket thing that he wore all the time. And Chris kept saying, "Andy, Andy, you know, I, I think I'll have to talk to Murray." And I go, "What's wrong?" I go, "Oh, I saw, I got just so awkward." We not, and he went up to him about four days into the tour. After he goes, "I'm really sorry, you're such a wounded accent." Was you really such a nice guy and all that? But you know, you, you can't be wearing uh, anything to do with cures and all that. They, they're they're affiliated to. The, the, the clan, the Ku Klux Klan, and all that. Mm. He's really so, and he's like, "What did he know? What did he know, Kennedy?" <laughs> throwing it away. <laughs> so he's in Dorney or something. He's like, "Throwing it away." Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my father. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so he was really nasty to the guy. Was he was really really sensitive about things and thoughtful about things. And now he was really nice, and he liked Jacob's Creek wine again. And he's dead sensible and quiet, really quiet, funny. Whenever you were having a party or a good time, it was always always loads of fun. Really, uh, uh, James, the bass player, can't remember if he was in the fast lanes with Eugene. James was allowed to use his back line. I was allowed to use Dave's uh, drums. They were so generous. They were all like that. They're absolutely brilliant. Well, because Dave uh, came up in the, the DC punk scene where it was Henry Rollins and everyone was a band yeah, together. I've just read Virginia. He was from Virginia and then moved from Virginia when he was young. Yes. He into a, uh, bands and all that. And he, but the original band, I, I quite like the original band because that... We got a few of the, the original album, the, the first album, Bleach. Bleach, when it came out, that was in Sub Pop. And whenever we, got, whenever we got to hear it, I remember having a TDK tape of 45 minutes each side to 90 minutes tape. Um, and it had, somebody had, I think again, it was maybe Charlie Kelly, Eugene's big brother, something like that, it was somebody's cassette. Because I remember Eugene saying, this is Charlie's version, I stole it and they gave it to me. And, and it was a tape, he said, it's a tape of a tape of a tape. And I put it on and I heard the first five or six songs and never mind. And I was like, we're so, we're, this isn't the same band. This isn't the same band, is it? Mm. He sounded, he just sounded as if they'd grown up. And, well, and money Dave, as well. Drummer, David Geffen's money. Dave Guy, exactly. Geffen's money, that's a good point. Yeah. You know? But they had it and it was, it was really, it was Sonic Youth, they were pivotal to Nirvana. Sonic Youth was so important. It was their sort of patronage and all that. They, they, they told their management about them and their management sort of came and watched them, sort of, right, aye, yeah, we could see it. Then they got them out to, remember they toured the UK in 91 with them, doing a, a festival, they played in Ireland, and they were playing in sort of really small clubs in, in Galway and all that. They were playing middle of nowhere, and then they, they did the, the Redding in uh, 91 gig. I had a chance to go to that, and I had to say they'd come home. Never, I never went. Hmm. I thought, I'd be up the road in six and a half hours in the back of the van, so in my bed, so I just went home. Well, how lucky yeah. that you, in the end, you got to tour with them as Captain America with oh. Eugene Kelly, who was of the Vaselines. Of course, we all know about, this is a song yeah, by Eugene the Vaselines, did. Kurt Cobain at the end of TV Unplugged. Well, it's really weird because my, my pal uh, was, all, all the guys that I, I kind of knew them anyway, but Gordon was from Airdrie and we were both pals and, and we were in bands, we, we guys were Airdrie in bands and it was kind of, a, we, we always sort of met up and, and signed on day, gyro day and, and oh. we always... Made a point of meeting up and go for a coffee and reading the music papers on a Wednesday and all that. I get, I get paid on a Wednesday and he signed on a Wednesday. And we used to always meet and all that. And then he was saying, oh, I'm, I'm in this band. He was in the BMX band that's been Eugene at the time. He fed the BMX band or something. Great band. We were Very in, good band. We were in, we were in, uh, he was in this band. Him and Eugene were in the BMX bandits, I think, at the time. And he was saying to me, I'm in, I mean, Eugene are getting a band together and it's kind of a, it's, it's like a turbo version, it's like a, a punky version of Vaseline's Captain America, we're called. We're looking for a drummer. And I was like, oh, I wanted to write, I wanted to, to do jokes and be a writer, I wanted to do uh, journalism, that was my plan. 
I'd messed about in Banfield with 15 and I was about 24 or something by then. At least if I write from a journalist, I'll get paid for it and I'll learn. That was yeah. my that was my, my thought process. Anyway, long story short, that one night, it was, it was Brendan from Teenage Fan Club that was the drama that was helping him out and Brendan didn't show up for a gig and Gordon, he gave me a tape to listen to and I'd been to see them I'd been with them up to Aberdeen because I knew them was up in Aberdeen to watch them play and all that and I really enjoyed watching them I loved James the original bass player was amazing on it he was in the bass scenes with Eugene and Gordon was great the guitar dead dead loud and Eugene the songs I'm saying that's the, that's the it's basically the Vaseline songs were turned into uh, Pixies they sound like the Pixies and then I saw I quite like this <laughs> but I, I was I just wanted to go and see them and one night I got a phone call it was a Friday, a Friday night and they were supporting Mud Honey in Hull and Brendan didn't show up can you get your ARSC in here now Andy and help us out and I thought for God's sake God and then I was like I think the, the Jonathan Ross or something was up at 6 o'clock on a Friday night and went aye alright and I got my, my father-in-law gave us, gave us a lift oh, and, wow. me. And, it's like, and I went on stage and I played I started playing the drums for the second end I was never so glad to see him, but uh, Brendan Stokes on, God knows what <laughs> Brendan Stokes yeah. on. And I think, was this a setup to see if I could do this? And all that. And I went like, gave him the sticks and just walked off. And YouTube went, and, ladies and gentlemen, Andy Bowen, a new drummer and all that. And I was like, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I really didn't. I still, and even at that point, I was still kind of, and then at the end of that week, he said, oh, we're playing in London, mate, at Montoni and uh, Bowen. And then that's where they met. Uh, and then the next weekend, that, that weekend, sorry, it was the Reading Festival. So I was how quick it was. It was just like accidentally falling into the, the band. And then all of, and then I, so I started hanging out with them and I kept my notebook. Just I just thought, I was actually thinking thinking about doing a, a kind of a, a sitcom about a band that are past it, that are on the road and all that, and trying to relive former glories and all this. Uh, like Tutti Fruity, remember that? Did you get Tutti Fruity guys? Tutti Fruity with Robbie Coltrane and all that. Um... I'm, I'm sure we may have done, or it may have gone on video. So that that was uh, that, that kind of idea. So that was my plan, and then I ended up keeping notes and all that. And Kurt Cobain's sitting across from me, and, he's, and he, he thinks this is hilarious. He kept on calling it a journal, and he, and he called, called me Anne Frank and all that. Because mm. <laughs> anytime anybody from, I said, I'm, I can't be writing a diary, I can't be seen writing a diary. Because these Scottish people are so fucking crazy, man. It doesn't talk, it wasn't as camp as that. These Scottish people are so fucking crazy. That's, that's if I was Chad Nicholson. So he's like, why are you hating that, boo? Why are you hating that? But anyway, we were on all through the tour. I was the only place I could go for peace to write. And, and sometimes you would shut up. I would, I would be writing stuff down and getting everyone out of the way and getting everyone all organised. And just keep noticing. This notes of things are happening. I was watching them having a hit single. He's going, what are you writing? And I was like, because he was trying to write and he couldn't keep up. He was snackers and all that. He was putting me off my diary all the time. And I was thinking, nobody will believe this. Nobody will believe this. And then he kept, people kept on chapping at the door, like the, the road crew and their management and all that, the tour manager, for me to go to do an MTV interview or go to talk to the elder maker or something. And he would go, ah, and the kid on his sleep. And then he would, he would open his eye and that's, I would nod. And then he would come up again and start chatting away again. And it was, it was hilarious. It was really funny. And dead acerbic, really, really, he could cut down anyone who would see if he liked you, you were in and he knew you were in. But anyway, so and then the, very, the very last words I've spoke to him, whenever we sort of hugged each other, we all said, you know, and all that. And, and he said, and he always called it your journal, your journal. At the end, he, he went, keep up your diary, man. Keep up your diary. Keep up keep that. That's what he said to me. That was his last words. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I know, pretty sad, huh? He seems to it. be... History will declare him, I think, as the John Lennon of the Seattle scene. Because he see, you're talking about him being acerbic and funny. 
of course, it all went very, very wrong very quickly with the, a mix of kind of recreational and pharmaceutical drugs. But yeah, the third album he wanted to call I Hate Myself and I Want to Die. Oh. Nowadays, there would be a duty of care. But in those days, there weren't. No, he still looked after him, but it was just He was just like a devil. He was just... He was gallus. He was bright and he... Probably a wee bit manipulative with his, his record company. And, uh, Danny Goldberg's got a brilliant book out. He's got a really good book out. Serving the Servant, it's called, I think. Um, that was his manager. Yeah. He actually mentions my book, uh, mentions my book in his book and, and thanks me and he's in the acknowledgements and that. I've got to know him a wee bit. And he's, he's a really nice guy, but he, he was he was in charge of their creative decisions. And it's right, you're right. One of my friends said to me, that's amazing that Danny Goldberg's liked your book and talked about your book. Well, that's, see, that's, that's like... Brian Epstein, maybe John Lennon mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. That's like somebody that knew him from the start, coming through, helped him through, tried to. And he was really supportive and he was going through a lot of bad times with, with uh, all the stuff with, with Courtney Love and, and everything else. Oh, not with Courtney, but his, his, his predictions and all that. But oh, be, what I always say to people, what would, we, what would he do now if he was still alive? And I think he would be like Picasso or something, he'd be an artist or something, or a filmmaker. I, I'm not sure if he would do music. I think he might be like a record company owner or something and maybe of a, a label or something, but I don't think he would be in bands. I don't think he would do anything. I think he would maybe be more... I remember Chris Novoselic saying to me once in that tour, you know, we're, we're, we're maybe drunk and all, all over the place and all emotional. And a couple of nights we played we horrible. But one night in Newcastle, we absolutely made a total fool of ourselves. I, I, I actually crawled onto the drum riser. I was that drunk then. And I remember I was we're drinking Tenant Super Lager. Mm. I walked onto the. I, I, I was too drunk. It was like an opiate. My head was okay, but the rest of my body felt as if I was like rubber or foam. Right, and I was trying to go on the. Normally, you would do a skip and a jump and a hop, and you were on and you start doing your drumming. And I, I, I better be safe here. And I crawled up, and two of the two of the crew walked by, and I'm not small. They went like pick them up, and my and they're all like, "Oh, I'm watching. I'm not missing this. This is going to be hilarious." That's what happened. I'm saying. And I went to play, and it, it was in Newcastle, and the place was just. Rammed. They were they get caught. They were doing a a, a, beat, a radio one session for someone, and there was fog, fog in the thing, and they get they ended up getting lost or something. And, and they were they never got to the venue to be twenty past nine, and we were on second, and the place was mobbed. And it was a chance, and we were steaming absolutely. And we were all over the place. And I was sitting in the corner, all hot and, and all confused and all sweating, and, and didn't know what was happening to me. And big Chris says to me, "Don't go upset. It's just, it's just." Just messing about in bands. It's not important. That's what he said to me. It's just messing about in bands. It's just I just seen that to someone. Still get goosebumps thinking about that. A guy saying that to you. It's just messing about in bands and stuff. And don't forget how many how many times Platinum did Nevermind go. This is one of the most successful bands of the era, and yet he's it's I mean he he pops up in Foo Fighters sometimes, Chris, but he is the keeper of the flame of that band. Things always come back to Chris, I think. I think he was a peacemaker as well, a mm-hmm. bit between them. And maybe maybe they're less spoken about because of how well Dave has done. Um, but it's interesting that there's there's going to be, I think the, the, there's a, I know for a fact, I, I shouldn't be telling them to this, but I know there's definitely a, a project getting made just now by a production company for the, the 30th anniversary of, and it's going out in the autumn with the BBC. So I think it's another long as well. So No, I'm not surprised if, because it's a, this, I was three when it came out, so I hope there'll be lots oh, of kind of grizzled fifty-something. McGee will pop up, and Gallagher no, will pop it's, up. It's, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, there's going to be quite a lot of people involved in it. But the, 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 the idea, 
I remember saying to the guys, my friends and all at the time, and my, my girlfriend and my wife now, the same girl, oh. I think they're going to be like the Beatles. And they'd be laughed at me. I, I genuinely thought it was going to be, you know, there were going to be a huge... I thought there, be, there was something, and everyone just... And then when, once we started to hear smells like Teen Spirit, that came out just in the middle of the tour. And it, oh, I think it was in Glasgow, but they remember that time, it went to the top of the charts. So, and they were on top of the pops, and we saw them. I'm wasting the book, by the way, this is the whole book. I'm, <laughs> I'm just reciting the book. Maybe we should just go and buy the book. Please buy the book. This oh. is a tour diary published in 2013. Uh, sorry. You need to nudge me because I, because we're just having a chat and I can't see you. If, if I could see your eye and, and you gave me a nod, I would shut up. But because I'm so relaxed, I'm sitting in my house and I'm having a coffee. And I, no, that's I what I want. Them. That's what I want. The football library yeah, is about that's... kicking off your heels, yeah. talking about anything. That was the, the, the way it all laid out. And, and anyway, at the time, it was a massive uh, hit single. And then it, once the tour had finished in January, there was this amazing, amazing moment where it got to... You know, I think it knocked was it Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, one, yeah, think. just between Michael Jackson and Garth Brooks, Nirvana. <laughs> so good. That's a good dream call, by the way. <laughs> yeah, but Garth, Garth, Garth Crooks from Spain. Garth Crooks, he was a uh, fantastic. <laughs> that's when he. That's he why the song is showed up in boots. Inside left. Yeah, um, I wonder if in your comedy writing, which we'll talk about before we talk about your books in the second half. Uh, you write that on the front of A History of Scottish Football in a 100 Objects, an alternative football museum, the great Stuart Cosgrove writes, it's not Hamden Babylon, but it's very funny. Uh, Stuart Cosgrove writes a lot of stuff about the 60s, doesn't he? There's a lot of stuff, and he always links it into his soul music. He's a massive soul fan. Yeah. Uh, so, so what he does is he, he takes like a, a time or a year and, and, and looks, but it's, a, it's an investigation into a deep look at the soul, you know, the soul music is about at the time, you know, the social, political events that are happening, he takes events and he really, you know, he gets things going that way. Uh, he, he focuses in the, like a year, so 1968 it was going on and he just, he just will take things, he'll, he'll take a night, I think it happens, like a, well, they've recently one about Muhammad Ali's, amazing, the, the boxing, boxing stuff. He's really, it's a, I, very good, but, Listen, causes like a, a very, he's, he's a friend as well. They do a show up here, him and Tam Cowan do off the ball up here, and I've been on, they, they, they had me on talking about this book, and then they had me on talking about my Cruyff book as well, so they've been really kind to me. Mm-hmm. And it was, Hamden Babylon is, is one of the best, one of the most absurd books of the Scottish football out. So for me to say that was pretty cool and really nice. I, he's a good guy, he's very supportive. Up, they all are, it's, I've been lucky. I'm, I'm, honestly, I've got, I'm kind of, I live in the gym, I, I, I wanted to be a drummer, I wanted to be a comedy writer, and I wanted to be an author, and I'm kind of dipping my toes into all of them now, and, and it's great fun, and I've been, but it's a lot of work as well, and there's not much money in it, and you have to just, Covid has been tragic for some of people, but it's been great for writers, see people who can just sit in the house and work. Yeah, it was a shame, I spent, I spent the beginning of last year in cafes trying to write some songs for a song cycle about London, and then another about... Uh, football, the the lesser figures. Maybe I should pitch this to you: the lesser figures in football, like the reserve, reserve goalkeeper, or the chairman, or the groundsman. If, if it's a good idea, I think that's a, that's a secret. That's what I always say to people. It's sometimes it's not. A, if you if you put in the hours, you get, you've got a strong editor that you trust, and you can work really hard at stuff. If you've got a good idea, stuff will happen. Well, the good it's news. All about the idea. The, I've written. Um, a draft plan of a book about the FA Youth Cup 
And there are, I'm, I'm actually trying to talk to every single author who's published a football book on pitch, not on accident, not on purpose, but it just seems that all the great books are on pitch. And I've got one coming out next year about the FA Youth Cup. So uh, I'm working on that. Um, can I just uh, mention Stuart Cosgrove, who presents Off the Ball, which is uh, an institution in Scotland. Uh, like It's kind of like deep fried Mars bars, but on the radio. It's very Scottish, um, very popular. And it's, what, is it like Danny Baker? Does it have the same kind of love that Danny Baker has in England? Definitely good. Well, what, what you've got is a bit of chemistry because Tam Count, who's the, he's the, the other presenter, Tam is a wee bit more, he's a Marvel fan, and Stuart is a St. Johnson fan. And Stuart is, I think the original idea when they put the two of them together was Stuart was sort of a, a professor and he was high up at Channel 4 and all that, and he's got about six degrees, maybe more than that. And, uh, and, and Tam hasn't, but Tam is a really, really skilled comedy writer. He's really, really. He's very. They both seem to see them together working in the studio. They're really, really professional. It's unbelievable, but they've got a chemistry. I think the original idea was you, you've got like the posh guy and the football sort of navy guy. That was the, the original idea. But Tam's not like that, and Stuart's not like that, and then, and the, the chemistry just works. And they've been there. I think that it was twenty-five years, maybe uh, last year. There was a, a program. They can probably still catch it on uh, the BBC iPlayer and all that. You can see a documentary about them getting together. But getting the show put up, but it's really popular because it, it cuts through and they can they can actually, there used to be loads and loads of comedy on it as well, that's where I sort of cut my teeth really on that show, and Watson's wind up, a guy called Philip Biffer who does all the excuse, all excuses in institution as well, so I go mm-hmm. for all these shows, uh, he did a show on the radio as well, Watson's wind up, and it was all topical gags, and from that I got a job in uh, the Sunday Mail, which is Scotland's biggest sort of Sunday tabloid paper, really popular paper, but and you were writing, you were learning your craft all the time, and just working and working. So instead of going to do my journalism degree that I wanted to do when I was twenty-four, I ended up falling accidentally into these different outlets. But you're you're learning your craft all the time, and you're honing honing sentences and editing and rewriting and writing and rewriting all the time. So you get into all these good habits. So that's that's really important. But guy, anyway, back to Stuart, very clever, very funny, and knows about his, his music, knows about eyes. The books are all online, published by Berlin, Detroit 67, Memphis 68, Harlem 69, Cassius X and Jew in the Autumn. Maybe you will get a draft of this. Hey America, Black Music and the White House. Ooh, that looks to be one of the books of the year. It's got Nixon and James Brown on the cover. Uh, I'll definitely be spending money on that. He's, he's getting, that's a good idea. He's, in Berlin, are good publishers as well. I'm not sure if they're up to date all in, in Berlin. But they, uh, they're good. They're really good. And they're good at getting the books out and getting you onto the radio and all that. Also, a pitch as well. Pitch, I like the covers. Pitch covers are good. Yeah. They'll do a good job of your book. A good luck with that. that comes out. So Thanks so much. The draft will hopefully be at the end of the year. I'm hopeful of going all the way back to the 50s. Uh, and then talking to like Steve Perryman and Nigel Gibbs, Marvin Sordell of Watford. And um, as we're talking, we're talking on May 19. Uh, next Monday is the FA Youth Cup final between Liverpool, who are being steered by Alex Inglethorpe, who is one of the best uh, youth coaches in the world, against Aston Villa, who, of course, are promoting the likes of Louis Barry to the first team. So it ought to be a very good final. Um, what is youth football like in Scotland 
Uh, I know, I, apparently Hamilton, in fact, Andy Bolland wrote in this book, A History of Scottish Football and 100 Objects, uh, that the Hamilton you youth team... Yeah, they, they give young kids a... In fact, seeing Saturday there on Sunday, the last game of the, the season, they were down anyway, but they played some like eight kids for the youth academy. Wow. You know, they bring kids too, and if they're good enough, they'll pick them, they'll play them. And you need, remember hearing Pat Nevin talk about this years ago, um, he was talking about people, I think it was the argument about about the, the way kids are, are mollycoddled now, and at 12 and 13 they're in youth academies and they're, they're at clubs and they're, they're, they're really protected as an asset and they're, they're, they're looked after and they're, they're good footballers, but by the time they're 16 or 17, they're not getting the first team. In the time of 17, 18, they're still not getting the first team. And Pat had said that it, they should be, the time you're 21, you should have played at least maybe 150. Was it, was it something like that? He said, you need to be playing games. You need to have played a lot of games. And it's really, it's imperative. And then I think it was a time when they were trying to get guys to go out and field the youth players from like Celtic Rangers and Aberdeen and get them out to like Elgin and Albion Rovers and get them into like third division or second division sides in Scotland. Yeah. But apparently all the the insurance and all that, things like that that, that stopped it. It nearly happened. Oh. I think Brian McLean was involved at the, the SFA at the time. And, and I think it was a frustration with stuff like that that maybe you need to speak about it. But I think there was issues we, we just, it was like Scottish football, I mentioned in the book all the time, Scottish football is like a, like they, they run it like a, a bowling club. It's like, a, you know, uh, you haven't paid your dues and, and don't hang your coat there. And, and what you're doing, you can't, you, can't, you can't come in here without a tax on, right? All that. That's what it's like. But it's maybe modernised in the last few years. Petty and small-minded is what you say. Petty yes. and small-minded. That's it. That's exactly what it is. In fact, the, the tagline for off the ball, when you see that, I never thought of that, but maybe I've half-knocked it. <laughs> uh, off the ball is petty and ill-informed uh, football show on, on radio. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's the thing. And long may uh, so it. That's what I like. Really, really petty about everything Scottish football. But it's all in the book. 